Welcome to the Biz News Power Hour, where we give you the rational perspective on business news that matters. I'm Alec Hogg. With us in studio is uh, Nadia Swart and Justin Rowe Roberts. They're in Cape Town, but here with me in Johannesburg, uh, Stuart Lohman. Stu, uh, what's been going on on Biz News today? What are people reading? A few good themes today, Alec. Obviously, COVID's still the main driver of the dot-com uh, site, but Brian Pottinger, the former Sunday Times editor, he wrote a book a year ago on the COVID story, and he's just updated us with a piece on the COVID. He calls it the orthodox narrative and how it might not be what Such people expect. Such a good piece, isn't it? I mean, here's, here's Pottinger, who used to be the publisher as well of the Sunday Times, a top, top, top journalist. And his book opened a lot of eyes. Yeah. Now he's gone back and had a look at the data, the stats. And he's come to some very strong conclusions, i.e., the one that got me, was although we know there have been a heck of a lot less surgeries for hearts and cancer, the heart and cancer cause of death uh, in the U.S. and the U.K., where they've been keeping numbers, is down dramatically. Yeah. So what he says is, come on, pull the other one. Uh, <laughs> these guys have all been, uh, been classified as COVID deaths now. Exactly. And we've got also another uh, regular commentator, Simon Lincoln Reader. He wrote on the Afghanistan story, which obviously big, big news over the weekend. And he just refers to it as, as the, one, one of the original build back betters. You know, it's the U.S. goes in and then just sort of leaves and goes back to normal, which is, looks like what is happening with the Taliban taking back over there. Um, just another one, Ian Watson, another theme. Alec, open let's to the SA sports minister. What the sports minister wants to review how the poor performance of South Africa's medalists. And he says, well, you've got to look at yourself because you're going to get into Olympics if you qualify to a certain standard. So there's obviously something else at play. And uh, Nadia Swat has, uh, as always, been following what our community are watching on Business TV on YouTube. Nadia? So the best video over the weekend was our last flash briefing for last week, and that covered President Ramaphosa's testimony at the State Capture Commission in which he exposed deep tranches of the ANC's shadow state. And another video that's been doing really well is the summary of your interview with Pete Fulyun last week, um, in which he discusses China's crackdown on big tech and more specifically how that relates to retirement savings through NASPERS. The third video, which is well worth watching, is the Five Minute Pearls of Wisdom, which is an excerpt of the business webinar that was held with the founders of First Rand a year ago. Larry Dupinar, GT Ferreira, and Paul Harris. Stu, how are the podcasts being listened to? Uh, Alec, on the radio side, um, there's an interesting one with John Bicott, Shell Burtard. Uh, Bicott, you know, he's a bit like Pete Fillion, value fund manager at heart, and he looks at his two of his top 10 sort of performers recently. The Pittsfilian interview from last week on MTN Xara uh, is also running. And then it's another evergreen piece. It's uh, Panda's Mark Giraudot. He did the podcast on immunity, natural versus vaccine-induced immunity. Uh, and it's still it was done in June of this year and it's still been listened to. So. That was your interview, Nadia? Yeah, it was a follow-up to his article, which was has, I checked it this morning. It has over 133,000 reads. So I just wanted to find out more, and it's an incredible interview. Very, very smart guy. We had a really good piece in the Business Premium newsletter this morning drawing on the Sunday Times, the London Sunday Times, which has done a big investigation into the profiteering of the vaccine makers and how they're going to be jacking up 
the cost of vaccines. In the UK, for instance, the Moderna vaccine is going from £18 to £22. And we had similar increases uh, on the Pfizer vaccine. And it's, it's well worth remembering, as I mentioned in the newsletter, that Pfizer it had 71 offences over the years where it's broken the laws. And it's paid $4.5 billion in fines on those offences. And here we now just openly accepting what they say. Yeah. Anyway, uh, journalism is all about a good, solid level of skepticism about everything that's going on around us. Otherwise, we will allow those who would prey on society to do so, those vested interests. So we keep asking the difficult questions, even though it doesn't seem to be terribly popular nowadays to be doing that. Nadia, what is going on in the news headlines? So former President Jacob Zuma, who is currently serving a 15-month jail term for contempt of court, has undergone surgery for an unspecified condition and is due to have further procedures carried out in coming days. Zuma, whose arrest last month triggered a wave of protests and looting in parts of South Africa, will remain hospitalized close to his prison. This is according to the Pretoria-based Department of Correctional Services, which added that no date for his discharge can be predicted. The Constitutional Court on the 29th of June found Zuma guilty of violating his order to testify before a judicial panel that's probing graft during his rule. And his case has been a key test for the country's democracy and its resolve to uphold the rule of law. South Africa's state-owned ports and rail company is seeking a partner to take stakes in two container terminals to boost efficiency and strengthen ties with global trade routes. Transnet has earmarked its biggest facility in Durban on the eastern coast, along with the more southerly Mkura site for partnerships with private operators. This is according to the CEO, Portia Derby, in an interview. The process is set to kick off with a request for information to gauge interest from potential bidders, and the Johannesburg company could ultimately issue shares in return for investment. Durban and Mkura were among the worst performing container ports in the world in 2020, according to research compiled by the World Bank and the IHS market. And SARS Criminal and Illicit Economic Activities Division has reportedly traced stolen VBS money through two front companies into EFF Deputy Leader Floyd Shivambu's FNB Private Wealth Bank account, and it's demanding 28.2 million rand from his brother Brian Shivambu. The revenue service slapped two companies, of which B Shivambu is the sole director, with the 28.2 million rand bill as penalties for evading tax in 2017, 2018, and 2019. And SARS said that B. Shivambu had defrauded VBS out of 16 million, did not declare the income, and was combative and obstructive to the revenue services investigations, resulting in 125% and 200% tax penalties. Bright Rock believes that with every change in life comes opportunity, and the markets aren't any different. The daily movement in the markets mean change for us all, sometimes small, sometimes big. This daily market report is made just for you by Bradrock, the first ever needs matched life insurance that changes as your life changes. Justin Rowe Roberts has been keeping his eyes on the markets today. Justin, uh, hopefully there's not too much obstructive stuff going on there. The JSE All Share Index is down at 68,700. In the currency markets, the rand was largely flat against all the major currencies to 14 rand 76 cents to the dollar, 20 rand 44 cents to the pound, and 17 rand 36 cents to the euro. Gold is slightly lower at $1,775 an ounce. A Kruger rand will cost you around 27,500 rand. Brent crude is down at $70.20 a barrel, and the premier cryptocurrency will put you back 700,000 rand. 
In the financial news, chemicals and energy group Sasol returned to profitability in the six months to end June, helped by recovery in chemical and oil prices, as well as cost-saving measures, which included a reduction in capex. Sasol's headline earnings per share ballooned to a shade under 40 rand per share against a loss of 11 rand per share 12 months prior. The group has also cut debt in half from 177 billion to 90 billion rand. The share was down around 6% on the results. Global miner BHP Billiton is considering getting out of oil and gas in a multi-billion dollar exit as it looks to speed up its retreat from fossil fuels. The world's largest miner is reviewing its petroleum business and considering options, including a trade sale, adding that deliberations were still at an early stage and no final decision has been made yet. The share is slightly no- lower on the JSC today. Precious metals producers Northern and Impala Platinum released bumper trading updates, benefiting from strong precious metals prices over the past 12 months. Despite bottom line multiplying for both against the prior period, both shares were slightly down on the JSC today, having rebounded after this morning's sell-off. Thank you to Justin Rowe-Roberts. And coming up later in the program, we'll be covering all of those business stories with David Shapiro and Peter Major. We'll also have insights from Treasury One's Andre Salia on what's going on with the currency. And um, that interview done by Bronwyn, uh, Bronwyn Nielsen. Uh, who is uh, new to our team and, and supporting our business team here as well. Very well known, uh, broadcaster is Bronwyn. Uh, and then she'll also, she also will be conducting an interview, um, on a, a South African faith, um, organization, which has got major problems with the way that the Gates Foundation is managing agriculture or big agriculture on the continent. The view being, that big agriculture is actually causing more harm than good, and it has been supported by the Gates Foundation. All of that coming up in the next hour. This market report was made just for you by Bradrock, the first ever needs-matched life insurance that changes as your life changes. David Shapiro is with us this time coming from another part of America. Dave, last week it was New York. Where are you today? Boston. <laughs> um, I, I, I'm up in Boston, in Massachusetts. Yeah, I'm the home of the Red. Beautiful. Home of the Red Sox. Mm. And uh, a, a, I suppose also a large financial center as well. It's not just in New York mm. uh, that you know, we, we think about the New York Stock Exchange, but they got, they got great universities and uh, quite a few financial institutions there in Boston. Oh, and and the medical side, you know, you've got all the you've got all the the big universities here, and a lot of hospitals associated to them. So, if Alec, I I, I probably think there must be thirty forty colleges in this particular area, and all Ivy League, um, all of them uh, from from Boston University to Boston College to Wesley to MIT to Harvard, you name it. So it just goes on. It's it's really is a uh, in a center of education, and then you have all the medical uh, institutions around that. So it's a big area of biotech uh, today. Um, a lot of those, but as you say, it was it still is a very big uh, area for uh, financial institutions. I think either Vanguard was here or Fidelity. One of them was Boston based. I can't mm-hmm. remember which one. Mm. Dave, uh, what's the feeling in the U.S. about Afghanistan, which is being interpreted mm-hmm. certainly elsewhere in the world as a massive blunder by Joe Biden? Yeah, you know, for for most of the people in the street, I don't think it uh, matters much. 
you're not going to uh, walk past someone and they're going to be all stressed about it. But from a political point of view, it's making a lot of news. And it's now starting to occupy um, you know, media space as well in a big way. Uh, no one quite sure. There's no, there is no conclusion. Only that this has been 20 years that they went, uh, that they went in. You know, it, it's been 20 years since they went in, which was mainly to to beat Al Qaeda. And all that this does is open up for Al Qaeda to come back with American arms much stronger again. So a lot of debate: who's to blame? Uh, you know, I mean, this has gone through four different presidencies. So, uh, you know, from Bush to Obama to Trump, now to Biden, I think there might be one that I might have missed out. But um, so a lot of concern, a lot of concern what it means for American foreign policy, how the rest of the world will now look on America. And that's what they've got to address to say, look, this wasn't a major part of our policy, but uh, they've got to make it up in other, uh, other ways as well. So plenty of discussion going without any real conclusion, Alec. Oh, we forget that the uh, Twin Towers was on the 7th of October, uh, 20 years ago, 20 years ago, and uh, sorry, the Twin Towers is 9-11, of course, and they moved into Afghanistan on the 7th of October. Uh, So it was uh, in retaliation for that to a degree. They wanted to get hold of Osama bin Laden, so they invade the country. Craziness. And two and a half thousand American lives and billions and billions of dollars later, they decided to pull out in a week. And no wonder the whole place collapsed. But anyway, it is what it is. The investment markets, I suppose, are looking at this as a small part of of their day-to-day operations. Yeah, they're a little edgy at the moment. You know, I'm not quite sure what this means over the longer term so or whether it will have any impact other than on the America's credibility. But I don't think that's affected markets. You know, markets have been pretty steady. Powell's talking, I think, today or tomorrow um, so the focus will then uh, switch back to power and to monetary policy. Alec, the one thing that, 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 that I'm concluding is that the scars are still there from, um, you know, from COVID, more so in New York than in Boston. In Boston, things seem to be back. No one wears a mask or you only wear a mask if you want to and life has gone on. You know, it, it, it just carries on. Whereas in New York from today, they're going to, uh, if you go into a restaurant, you're going to have to show your vaccination card to show that you have been vaccinated. You can still eat outside in that. But there's still quite a bit of concern. And when I say the scars are still there, you can see a lot. You know, it's, it's not a, and, and, and I want to make this differentiation there's Wall Street and there's Main Street. Wall Street's doing brilliantly because those companies have survived and they're vibrant and money's going in, they've got liquidity. But, you know, from the hairdressers to the restaurants to, to the lower levels, I think the, uh, the pain is still being felt and you can still see so much retail space up for rent um, in New York. You know, there's a lot. Also, I'm, I'm having a debate about this, but the tourists are not there. You know, so we have even the out of towners. I know that Broadway is going to open pretty soon, and that draws in crowds and it draws a lot more activity and that. But uh, when I walk through Central Park or go for a run, I would always bump into 
you know, um, literally thousands of tourists walking through with their families. I haven't seen that. So I draw why I say that is that uh, tourism, like any other element of a, an economy, is quite important. And I, I just haven't seen the tourists in New York. The shops are, you know, the big department stores. You don't see throngs of people there. It's uh, you're seeing business. And there's consumerism, but I don't think to the point. So I think there's still quite a bit of way to go in getting this economy back to or, or to the levels that I think Powell wants to see it. And that's that's where we lose focus: Wall Street versus Main Street. You know, even on the JSC, um, you know, we lo- we lose that focus. Did you see Sassel's results coming out this morning? I remember we had a conversation with Fleetwood Krobler and we were terribly skeptical about it. Uh, I think you said if they mm-hmm. fell below 70 rand a share, then you'd buy them again. Well, they did mm-hmm. and you didn't. And, uh, and unfortunately, well, we can't, we can't hit a home run every swing. No, they, they've done a, a numerous things to get back to where they are at the moment. Um, I think the price, the recovery and the price favored them, but, what it's, you know, it's only, uh, what's it, 7.30 in, in here, and I haven't had a good chance to go through it. What I want to do and what we have to do is actually go through the full details of what remains and how strong the remaining businesses are to actually try and get back to where they were. And I think that's where the answer is. The market's down a bit today, and I think it's simply because they've given warnings about lower production ahead. Um, I'm assuming that, you know, that they're not as – Production in, in the chemical sector and the fuel sectors and other sectors won't be as strong as they were uh, this coming year for whatever reason. But um, it's look, it's in a far better shape. Uh, the company's in far better shape than when we made those conclusions. And credit to to um, you know to management for getting it there and for taking down the debt to the levels that they have. But that always comes with a price. You know, you sometimes you have to some sell some of the crown jewels to get to that point of survival. But it's a chemicals so, company now, and, and which is also extraordinary mm-hmm. if you think of uh, it always was a fuel company. You could look at the Rand oil price and you'd then know whether Sassel shares would be going up or down. Now uh, the bulk of their income comes from chemicals. So the, the investment yeah. into Lake Charles in the USA and Louisiana was expensive and a big part of uh, the problems that they had, but it does set them up as a very different operation into the future. Oh, totally. Oh, completely. And, um, you know, that's, that's what we now have to assess. And I'm not clever enough or I don't know enough about it to say, look, this is a very st- – because even there they had to sell 50% of certain of the operations in order to alleviate debt. Uh, it came at a massive cost and a massive cost to a lot of people as well. But uh, I suppose if you look at it now, and that's that's the answer, you've got to say, okay, forget about the history. What remains? <laughs> you know, what are the pillars that remain? Uh, is this a good business or not? If, you know, we have a, it's it's a, it's an Aspen story. It's a lot of these companies that have had to downsize. You know, you've got to now relook at them and say, okay. Forget about the history. What have they got now, and, and how do we how do we look at it uh, going forward? You know, forget about where they've come from. That they were six hundred rand a share. They you know went down to twenty rand a share. I think one's got to reassess them now because management seems to have stabilised it for the meantime. And I think the same applies to the Aspen story as well. So need to relook at these businesses. 
And the other big story in South Africa is the share swap between NASPAS and Process is now over. Yeah. It's done. Is there anything that we should be looking out for there? NASPAS still being the biggest stock on the Johannesburg uh, Stock Exchange. I think we've got to look at the Chinese story. And, and that's still, whether we like it or not, it's still their main asset. And one's got to try and work out where China are heading. And each day they seem to change direction or shift direction. But I think it was the lead story in The Economist this weekend. And I think people are still very concerned about what the future of the Chinese economy is. And, and it's more the political side of it and how they're going to apply their, their authoritarian rule to, um, you know, to businesses. You dare not step out of line. You know, this is, this is how we think. And as long as you think in the same lines, you're okay. So I think we're going to have lots of ups and downs. It's, it's a Tencent, Alibaba, all these businesses are huge. And I think the Chinese are very proud of it. But Alec, at the, I, I'm still a little concerned. You know, I, I know every day you wake up, you don't want to find oh another shock. You know, oh they're going for this business, and I think they've even stated that that this is a five-year um, look into businesses and how they want it. Remember, it's a it's a communist country. A communist country looks after its people. You know, wants them to be equally educated, equal health, all those kind of elements and that. And when these businesses start to buy away from it, you know, buy away from that element and get too bolshy and too big for their boots, they cut you down to size. So I think that's going to be our big challenge is how we look at it. And I suppose the hope is that Bob van Dyke with Process can actually find something to compensate for that. I, I, I haven't found anything yet. You know, it's lots of bits and pieces of that. And they, they're doing okay, but I don't think they're doing well enough to really take away the appeal of, of Tencent. Peter Major is the head of mining at Mergence Corporate Services and our go-to man, anything to do with resources. Pete, lots going on today. Uh, Sassel, because they've got a big mining interest, is a, a stock, I guess, that all South Africans watch carefully. Have you had a chance yet to have a look at their numbers? Yeah, yeah I did, Alec, and lots of surprises there. The debt came in at the low end of what they'd been telling us they were trying to do, you know, 90 billion instead of 95, but we'll take what we can get. And 75% of their earnings came from chemicals. So it shows, you know, they were losing so much money on chemicals, but when the chemicals turned, boy, they make, they made a lot. So 75% of income on chemicals, only 25% on fuels. And we've had pretty high fuel prices. So, that's probably not going to get too much better going forward, but the chemicals seem to be really doing well now. It's a massive change, isn't it, for a company that used to be 90% oil and it's now become a chemical business. Yeah. And, and you know, they always said we want to develop the chemical bit, just like they did later with explosives. Um, but it's something we're not used to. You know, we're in basic commodities in South Africa. We're used to gold, platinum, iron ore, manganese coal, oil. So the chemicals, you know, who was our big chemical plant? It was really them. The refiners weren't listed, you know, and Gen was for a while, but yeah, the chemicals are where Sassel sees its future. You know, it wants to get out of making dirty coal into dirty oil and being the world's <laughs> greatest polluter. <laughs> yeah, and that's not a bad idea in this uh, era of ESG. Uh, how the share price reaction down a few percentage points this morning. 
Yeah, I don't know what it was expecting. I think it was more on the oil price coming off than on, on Sassel. Uh, when, when the analysts are saying, hey, these results are actually pretty good, there's something driving the share price down that, that we're not making aware of. But I, I think the world's quite concerned about the oil price. You got to remember, this virus is big and it's not going away and it's not playing favorites. It's taking over the whole world. And I honestly have not imagined what is holding oil above $70. You know, we always talk about long-term averages. We talk about the world's greatest commodity that there's no shortage of, oil first and maybe iron ore later. So, yeah, why is oil trading above $50, $55? If that's its long-term average, why is it trading at $75 when the world has this whole virus to contend with and economies are looking at possibly bouncing back into recession? So I think it's more the oil price that drove Sassel down today than these results. All right. So shareholders should be looking at the numbers and saying management are doing a good job at the moment. They actually aren't doing too bad. Yeah. You know, a lot of them should have been locked up for what happened the last two years. But the crew they've got in there now is grappling with difficult issues and, and the macro factors are in their favor. Well, congratulations, Fleetwood Krobler. What a wonderful first name that, Fleetwood. I wonder where it, I, I, I should ask him one day uh, where it came from. Have you heard of that Christian name before? Well, Fleetwood Mac, I used to always listen to. But... <laughs> of course, that was his surname, though, wasn't it? The, the musician. But anyway, a, a good, good set of numbers from Sassel going to be making many South Africans very happy. Moving on to the other big story of today, BHP Billiton looking at corporate action to do with the oil side. Now, just explain that, oil and gas, because, again, my understanding is that this was a huge part of their business. It is, Alec. I'm not sure how big it is offhand. Uh, I should remember, but it, it's more than a quarter of their business. And, and you're going to start saying, hey, didn't they get rid of South 32 a little while ago, you know, trying to focus on, on the basics? And didn't we hear them saying oil and natural gas and liquefied natural gas were going to be some of their future. And remember when Marius Coppers was running BHP and he tried to do about three or four large mining transactions back in 06, 07, and none of them turned out. Then he went and bought all this gas property in the United States just in time to catch the big crash, the big fall in 2008. So they wrote off billions overpaying, grossly overpaying at the top of the market for all those supposed natural gas or shale. It was more shale gas and even natural gas. So they've really taken it on the chin and now they want to get out of natural gas and, and normal oil. It is a big part of the company. And I, I look, I'm a mining guy. I've, I've got a partiality towards commodities that are more predictable and you can control your costs. You know, the oil business, it is multiples larger than the mining business. And, and you put all the big mining companies together, I don't even think you get a trillion dollars, maybe barely. And, and yet you don't need too many oil company, giants to get there. It is a big surprise to me. Yeah, they're looking at getting out. Maybe they think this is the top. Maybe they think, hey, our share price seems to have peaked. And we don't think oil is going to go much above 75 for the next five or 10 years. We, we think there's going to be pressure on it. I don't know the thinking behind it, but that would be my thinking. And if they think like that, this could be the best time to get out of it. You know, everybody is keen on the company. 
they're still keen on oil shares. Um, it, it, it needs more, more analysis, more behind the scenes. How is this going to affect the company if they get a good price and who are they going to sell it to? They're going to sell it in chunks or just let go of the whole division like Anglo-American did with their coal division, like um, BHP did with South 32. It's a, it's a huge move, though, for uh, the big Australian, as they called uh, in, in Sydney, uh, or rather Melbourne, where the head office is based. Peter, uh, BHP Billiton as, a, uh, as an investment proposition at these levels? It's not badly priced at these levels, Alec, but none of these mining companies I look at are badly priced at these levels. They're... They're making tons of cash. They can pay out much larger dividends than they are at present. I wouldn't be surprised if they start paying out a couple special dividends. And they're using great restraint on expanding current operations. So would I be buying BHP right now? It's kind of hit a triple top. I think in the last eight months, it's hit this price three times, and it can't seem to get higher. So... You know, you knock three times, the guy doesn't answer the door. You probably don't come back a fourth time. So I'm concerned. We've seen iron ore now come down from 220 to 160. And just about everybody thinks it's going back to 100. And BHP makes a lot of money off iron ore. Oil bouncing off $75, now at 71, maybe 70. So I wouldn't be in a rush to buy BHP. Quality stock, just like Anglos is. But all these mining stocks... They're cheap for a reason. They're cheap because they ran up on the highest commodity prices we've ever seen in the history of man. And now those commodity prices have been coming off for the last couple of months and look like they're going to keep coming off because the margins are still too high. And, and we're worried about demand. Can demand keep these, these margins and these commodity prices up this high? No, I don't believe there is enough demand to do that. And you're reading in the last few days, you're reading the world is getting concerned. It can't support an oil price of $75, that the demand isn't there. So a word of, of considerable caution there from Peter Major. Before we let you go, there are trading updates today from Northern Platinum and Impala Platinum. Uh, the one seemed to be welcomed. The other one not so uh, welcomed by the marketplace. Uh, what did you make of those two? Look, I didn't read the Northern one yet, but I saw Northern took the biggest drop. It was down about 5% at the open, yet half hour ago it recovered. It was only down percent, percent and a half. And I'll tell you, I don't remember seeing better management at these platinum mines since I've been here in 82. And, and usually their management was good, sometimes average, but they have top, top managers now. And, and Paul Don, if anybody knows how to organically grow and to get maximum butt for Capex, it is Paul Dunn. Um, look at the acquisitions he did, you know, buying the, the former Elon's platinum, you know, the price he paid and, and, and the synergies he's got and how he's developed Boysendahl. So these, these, these announcements, to me, they don't change the fundamental picture. You've got great management at Impala and especially Northam. You've got good assets there. They're still on huge margins. These PGM prices can keep coming off another 10, 15%. It'll hardly phase the earnings. But would I be buying them at this level? No, because I think all the commodities are coming off. And, and I, I'm just wary. You know, it, that high dividend, that low PE, it makes it very attractive to get in here. 
and they are RAND hedges that if the economy gets worse or the RAND gets worse, it, it, that'll buttress these earnings. But I'm, I'm just wary buying them. They are cheap here, Alec. And, and you're not going to get burned buying here unless these commodities come off strongly, which means another 20% rather than another 10 or 15. But I am wary. You know, it's been a, a huge run and a lot of other people are wary. And that's why the shares are under pressure. This currency focus is proudly brought to you by Treasury One, South Africa's leading treasury solutions company that unlocks financial value for your business. With me now, Andre Siliers from Treasury One. Andre, let's get the lowdown on this volatile currency of ours. And of course, it's being buffered by data coming out of the US on, on a regular basis. Where do you see it going in the short term? I suppose that's really uh, equivalent to asking you to get your, your crystal ball out and give us your best, your best guess. Best guess. Uh, yes, good afternoon to everybody. Uh, best guess would be that we're going to remain within a trading range this week and next week and for the, for the very foreseeable future uh, of 1450 uh, to 1490. RAND seems to be very happy in those uh, parameters at the moment. Uh, and unless we see something dramatic coming out of the FOMC and we have their minutes coming out this week, uh, we will remain within that range. What would, when you say dramatic coming out, what would that scenario look like? Well, good. If we analyze the FOMC and the minutes and the discussions and the press conferences by uh, Mr. Powell over the last couple of weeks, then two things that they're saying. They're happy with inflation at the higher levels. Uh, They would prefer seeing further employment, closer to full employment levels in the U.S., and they will continue with expansionary monetary policy uh, for as long as it's necessary, necessary to see that full employment and to see robust growth in the economy. So something drastic would be a move away from that stance. I.e. we see tapering coming into to play. What would the scenario be there? How dramatically could we retrace? Good. If they come out and they say that as far as they're concerned, employment is sufficient uh, at really good levels, uh, they're happy and, and starting to get unhappy with inflation that doesn't look as transitory as that they initially thought uh, and that they need to move a lot quicker uh, on the tapering, uh, on buying back of uh, liquidity out of the markets and increase interest rates. That would be the dramatic move. Uh, if they were to bring interest rate increases forward from what they anticipate as end of 2023, uh, most probably into uh, late 22, early 23. That would be very dramatic. It would cause a major move in the dollar. We would see the dollar index jump significantly to higher levels, uh, and that would weaken the, the rand considerably, and we will breach the 15 levels reach and go beyond quite dramatically the 15 levels when you talk about weakening in if, that if scenario? It's sort of a dramatic approach. In that scenario, it will breach the 15 levels 
and it will remain above the 15 levels because that's the kind of scenario where the dollar, dollar index would uh, go a lot stronger. Uh, you will have a very negative impact on emerging markets and outflow of uh, a lot of money out of the emerging market space into the Americas. Um, and that would breach the 15, stay above the 15 for a considerable amount of time. To, to what extent does local data have any bearing on the, the local unit? Or are we just at the mercy of international news flow? I'm not going to say that nothing that happens domestically uh, is not important. Uh, but I have often said uh, that we are exposed due to an open economy, due to being part of the international markets, uh, exposed to international trade. Uh, we are sort of at the vulnerability of what happens internationally, specifically again with the dollar, uh, to extend to about 70% of our flows. We saw the dollar rand weaken to around about the 1476 level on the announcement of the new finance minister when we saw the, the cabinet reshuffle here in South Africa. Currently uh, tracking around about 1474 levels, so still in that arena. Your thoughts on the change in the finance ministry? Of course, we have seen that Minister Godongwana uh, is going to have very little change from the policies set by Minister Mbaweni. But again, the finance ministry does have a bearing on the sentiment and investor sentiment around our currency. What are your thoughts on this scenario, Andre? It's quite late in the financial year for the new finance minister to change the budget. It's, it's through parliament, it's accepted. Uh, very little change is expected. Uh, he's going to run the budget down. The big change that can be expected, and at this point in time, he's really uh, vocally said that there will be minimal change. Uh, so big change will only come in and speculations surrounding that towards the budget speech of next year. So I don't expect any fireworks at all. Uh, but, uh, you know, Mr. Ramaphosa had said, watch this space. Uh, and in terms of the Treasury and a new finance ministry, uh, when we get closer to the budget next year, watch this space. To what extent is any potential RAND weakness uh, countered by the commodity strength that, that prevails and that obviously has been very good for South Africa uh, across the board. In other words, to, to what extent is that a buffer commodity strength to potential RAND weakness going forward? Well, we flattened out a little bit. The commodity strength was specifically uh, in the beginning of the year, a very big factor. Since then, prices have flattened out a little bit, uh, slightly lower demand because of COVID-19 concerns, etc., all over the world, especially out of China. Uh, I, it, but it was expected. You know, nothing can continue at the same path of growth as it did in the beginning of the year. But it's still at high levels. Uh, it's still a commodity boom, uh, just at slightly flattened out levels. But still benefiting the country hugely. As we go into the end of the third and fourth quarter, we must remember that that's also very good periods for our agricultural exports. Uh, and just yesterday, I've read about the uh, fantastic maize crop that's expected. 
Uh, and it's expected that the export levels of agricultural products in the third and fourth quarter would actually outstrip the uh, exports of the 2020 year. So that would aid what we little bit lose on the commodity side. That would sort of bode well for that. So I still foresee fantastic trade balance figures, good surplus figures, um, and terms of trade for South Africa still very much on the up and on the positive, uh, aiding the currency at this stage. And then finally, Andre, the rioting and looting that we saw, uh, which marred July here in, in South Africa, has that worked its way through the system already from a sentiment perspective and the impact on the local unit? I think it's expected uh, that our growth figures for the quarters would be uh, for the second quarter and also the third quarter would be slightly lower than what was expected. Uh, and I think that's kind of built into uh, currency and forecasts, uh, etc. So I don't think that when the figures actually get released as we go forward, it would have a further dramatic negative impact unless it is a lot worse than what was expected. But I do not foresee that. Similarly, as I do not foresee that the FOMC is going to give us a shock, uh, ends me saying that in the short term we stay within a trading range 1450, 1490, very happy medium at this stage. Well, we'll take that trading range uh, 1450 to 1490 on dollar rand. Andre Sillia's Treasury One, thank you so much for joining us for this Currency Focus. I'm Bronwyn Nielsen for Biz News. This Currency Focus was proudly brought to you by Treasury One, South Africa's leading treasury solutions company that unlocks financial value for your business. Thank you very much for joining us, Francesca de Gas Paris. Great having you on the show and getting a sense of the statement that you as SAFSI have sent through to the Melinda and Bill Gates Foundation with regards to uh, the issues that you're having with the direction that they are taking when it comes to uh, farming across the African continent. So first of all, I think let's just start with what SAFSI stands for. Thanks so much. It's great to be here with you. SAFSI is the Southern African Faith Communities Environment Institute. We're an environmental NGO, and we work specifically with faith communities in the region on environmental issues, which we frame as eco-justice, climate justice, anything to do with uh, decision-making or processes that are happening that aren't really delivering to the people who are most vulnerable in these circumstances. So... Give me the beef that you have with the Melinda and Bill Gates Foundation. The Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation do a lot of excellent work. So it's really important to preface that. Um, we are not in any way a part of any kind of conspiracies around vaccines or anything like that. We believe that the work that they, they do in the medical field are, is incredibly important in our region. Not to say that there isn't always a critique for how... Um, overseas NGOs work in Africa. There's a critique to be made there, but that's not the issue that we've got that we're faced with now. This year, we've got the uh, World Food System Summit, which the United Nations is hosting. And for some time now, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation have been funding AGRA. And AGRA is a, a, an initiative in Africa that is really about reforming our seed laws. It's called the Alliance for the Green Revolution in Africa. 
but they've been trying to reform our food law, our farming laws. Um, so they do quite a lot of policy work. And they also try and incentivize making farming more industrialized. Unfortunately, it's a great idea, which isn't actually reaping benefits, in particular for small scale farmers in Africa. And in our region, most farmers are small scale farmers. And if we're talking about farming as a justice issue, we need to be making sure that the people who are most vulnerable in these situations, those are the people with the least land, uh, those are the people with the least other resources, they're not able to just go to the city and get a job, that they are actually being supported in their farming practices. And unfortunately, the investment by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation is doing exactly the opposite. Wait, when we say exactly the opposite, you infer industrial style farming as not being the answer to to food security. What are the issues with the industrial style farming? I think let's unpack that at this stage. Yeah, I mean, I think that historically, we, as a part of the industrial revolution, as a part of our mechanization of how we do things in farming practices and so on, it worked for a while. But industrial farming basically depletes the soil. It puts uh, farmed animals in cages, these very high intensive farming systems, which produce a vast amount of waste, and they're not working within the wider ecosystem. So what you see is it's a high input, lots of fossil fuels, very much impactful on climate change, and a lot of outputs, a lot of waste products, and not, you know, not beneficial to a smaller beneficiary. So the high input, high output, monoculture, chemical, intensive farming isn't going to reap the benefits that we think it will. So if you ask a small scale farmer to go into cash cropping, what happens is the diversity of the food that they're growing grows right down and they become very reliant on the market. And if the market is bad that year, for whatever reason, maybe it's COVID, maybe it's climate change, maybe there's been a severe drought, they then have only one cash crop, which they either can't sell or is, is worthless. They're now really in a difficult situation. If you work with indigenous farming systems, you have a diversity on your farm. So you have a lot of different crops and you have a lot of nutritional value in that farm. Why, why is their approach misguided? I mean, why are they not taking into account uh, the indigenous farming that you are referring to as the answer uh, to the small scale farmer, not only being able to feed himself, but to obviously help with this dire, dire issue of food security across the continent. You know, the, the very uh, serious critique that the Gates Foundation has been getting is that it's sort of a, a savior complex or a white savior complex. I don't take that position. The reason I don't take that position is because I think they're trying to address the same issues as we are, which is hunger, which is poverty, but the model that they're using, the ideological model, and we see this often in how decision-making gets done top-down. You come with an ideological approach, but you're not listening to what the people actually need or want. You can support farmers. I think it's a brilliant initiative. I wish they put, they put their billions into actually thinking about how to sustain these farmers in the current systems where they work so that we're not entirely replacing their actual knowledge systems that they hold, the seeds that they hold, that we're not taking that all away, but actually adding and enhancing what they're doing already. Small-scale farmers need support, but this isn't the kind of support that they need. And the evidence is showing that. Research has been looking at what AGRA has been doing, 
and the evidence isn't supporting that. I think that when you are a multi-billionaire running a multi-billion NGO, it becomes quite difficult to sit down and have dialogue. It's become quite a polarized space. I think what we've been saying to the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation is that we want to have dialogue with you. We want you to listen to what we are offering. We want to have a discussion with you. We want to challenge this idea that there isn't enough food to feed the world because there is. The issue with food is around access. So there's enough food, but it gets wasted or it doesn't get to the people who, who need to eat it. And the, the market, what it does is it undermines the small farmers who already, they have, they have a product, they just don't have anywhere to sell it. So if the smallholder farmers aren't winning, who is winning with the industrial farming? Well, a few elite big farmers benefit in the short term. But if you look at, take the US, the US has got great inequality issues. They haven't solved their problem by any means. You have these vast uh, maize farms, the, the corn farms, and the, the soil is like a desert now. They have to put in a ton of chemicals, a lot of fossil fuels in order to farm that land because the, the soil never can, no longer contains the health and well-being that can support the plants. That is a problem. That's not a system that is working within an ecosystem. That's the thing about rich and healthy soil. It's full of the community of life. It's full of all kinds of things in our biome. You know, the, the insects and the organisms, they all can live there because we're not using pesticides or chemicals to enhance growth. Who's going to take the lead on reworking the formula that is being deployed across the African continent? Well, you know, our governments often are swayed very easily by major uh, funding major organizations like AGRA. So we see their policies changing. And what we're doing, we won't benefit. It's not, a, it's not like we're in a sort of business competition space. That's not what this is about. And I think sometimes if your mindset comes from a business model, you think that then development also needs to be done with a business model. That's not what this is about. This is about benefiting the small farmers who are most vulnerable to climate change, the small farmers who are really getting hit by things like COVID. So how can we benefit them? So our message is, and the reason why 500 faith leaders from across Africa signed the letter that we sent to them was, hey, can you just pause for a minute and have a conversation with us? Can you actually listen to us who are witnessing what's happening on this continent and happening to farmers so that you can actually take stock of the system that's working and let's change that. You know, these things aren't set in stone. So we're hoping that with the, the opportunities like this to share this perspective, that people will start to think about it and engage with it more. And governments will want to have the conversation with those of us who are supporting the small farmers, who do want to see a system that actually really genuinely benefits them. Have you had a response? From no, no response, no response, no um, but we have, we have had a bit of press in the US, so we hope that they will start responding. They did um, at one point talk to press about the fact that, you know, there's, there's critiques of, of the approach, but it's been quite a defensive language. I, I didn't find it sort of an openness to dialogue or an openness to see, see the other side. And I think when you're that big, like the Gates Foundation, you really do need to give the opportunity and, you know, let some other thinking in. I think Monsanto, which is a big genetically modified crop business, has had the ear of the Gates Foundation for a long time. And I'd like them to also start talking to some of the rest of us in society that make up the other aspects of society who aren't benefiting from their approach. 
Today is Monday, August 16th, and this is your FT News Briefing. Afghanistan's president has fled the country as the Taliban advances on Kabul. In Haiti, the death toll is rising from Saturday's earthquake, and now a tropical storm is on the way. Plus, the Delta variant is spreading, and governments are using all kinds of tactics to get people vaccinated. The problem with all these incentives and all these mandates is that although they seem to work in the short time, it's further intensified the people marching at weekends in protest. The anti-vaxxers may be a small minority, but they've been revitalized by this. I'm Lauren Fedor, in for Mark Filipino, and here's the news you need. Afghan President Ashraf Ghani fled his country yesterday as the Taliban poured into Kabul. They're on the verge of regaining control of the capital nearly 20 years after they were ousted by an invasion led by the U.S. Panicked Afghan citizens also tried to flee, and there was chaos at Kabul airport. Meanwhile, the U.S. and European governments raced to evacuate their citizens. Many Afghans expressed fury at the U.S. focus on evacuating its own citizens and leaving the local population at the mercy of the Taliban. And Haiti is reeling from the massive earthquake that struck this weekend. By Sunday night, officials had counted more than 1,200 people dead and nearly 6,000 injured. Now there's a tropical storm headed towards the island. Here's the FT's Gideon Long. The U.S. National Hurricane Center is warning that it will bring heavy rainfall and then it could lead to flash and urban flooding. So uh, it could be flooding in the affected area by the earthquake. That's why rescuers in the area are trying to get as many people from the rubble as they can as quickly as possible and to also treat the injured. The hospitals in the area that's been hit by the earthquake are apparently over capacity. So there's an urgency because of the imminent arrival of Tropical Storm Grace. Gideon, the earthquake comes at a terrible time for Haiti. The country's president was assassinated last month. There's so much political uncertainty, not to mention widespread gang violence. Are there security concerns affecting the relief effort? There are. If you look at the map of Haiti, the worst affected area from the earthquake is a peninsula. The whole of the south of Haiti is a long peninsula and the worst affected areas are right at the end of that peninsula. There's one road which leads from the capital Port-au-Prince to the peninsula and it's been blocked in recent weeks by criminal gangs. Now it's unclear if those gangs are allowing aid to go through or if they're hampering the relief efforts. So there is some uncertainty. I've been talking to aid workers in Port-au-Prince and they're just not sure that they can actually get the aid through because of the security situation. Gideon Long covers Haiti for the FT. Many countries thought they were winning the race against COVID, but now they're confronting another spike in cases, so they have to keep pushing people to get vaccinated. Officials are using all kinds of carrots and sticks, but both those approaches have their own risks. I'm joined by our science editor, Clive Cookson. Hi, Clive. Hi, Lauren. So we should probably start out by saying this is a a rich country problem. What do you mean when you say that? It's a problem for countries that have plenty of vaccine supplies and are now trying to get the reluctant adults, young adults in particular, to take them up. And those are countries in Europe and North America in particular. Of course, poorer parts of the world, especially in Africa, are very, very short of vaccines. They'd love to have this problem. But if we look at Europe 
and North America. I think they're doing pretty well in terms of numbers vaccinated. Their figures are above 70% of adults almost everywhere. Mm. So, you know, that 70% threshold, it seems that that's not good enough, though, right? Policymakers want to bring that number higher. What are they doing in terms of stick when it comes to convincing the unvaccinated to get vaccinated? Well, the stick approach is really gaining traction now. There are two sorts of sticks or mandates, as they're now being called. One is that you need proof of vaccination, a health pass or a vaccine pass, to go into restaurants, places of leisure and entertainment. So that's one sort of compulsion. The other is you need to be doubly vaccinated to work. And an increasing number of employers, particularly in the States, are saying if you're not vaccinated by, so typically, I think, mid-October to give people time, then you're not going to work with us any longer. Are there risks with these approaches? You know, could they backfire, whether it's the carrot or the stick? I think that the carrots risk annoying people who've already been vaccinated, doubly vaccinated, willingly. And if you then see someone else being offered 100 or $300 to do the same thing as you did without any carrot, that's annoying. And I've already seen that in social media. When it comes to the stick, there's a real risk of alienation, I think. The problem with all these incentives and all these mandates is that Although they seem to work in the short time, it's further intensified the people marching at weekends in protest. The anti-vaxxers may be a small minority, but they've been revitalized by this. So I would say it's the sort of increasing divisions that is the real downside of this. Are there other tactics that public health experts and policymakers are suggesting as an alternative? What public health experts and vaccinologists would love is to do away with the carrots and the sticks and use the power of persuasion. It's thought that the vehemently anti-vax feeling is quite a smallish hardcore, and there are probably more people who are reluctant. They may not have time to take an hour or two to go to a vaccine centre. So if you can, A, persuade them, that it really is worth doing, that the benefits of vaccination for them personally, as well as their sort of social responsibility, outweigh the very small risks of side effects, then that will help. You also need, I think, to make it more convenient. So there's increasing emphasis on mobile vaccine clinics, vaccine buses, taking the vaccines to where people are so that you can very, very quickly get your jab and get out again. Despite the Delta variant, in Austria, officials have gone ahead with their world-famous classical music festival in Salzburg. The city hosted a scaled-back festival last year, but this year it's in full swing. Streets are filled with concertgoers and performances are packed. That's even though COVID cases are creeping up in the country and about half the population there is vaccinated. There is a COVID safety strategy, and it's been shared with over 50 institutions worldwide, 
as an example of how to stage cultural events safely. You can read more on all of these stories at FT.com. This has been your daily FT News Briefing. Make sure you check back tomorrow for the latest business news. Well, thanks for being with us today. We'll be back again, same time, same place tomorrow. Until then, cheerio. You've been listening to the Power Hour, brought to you by the team at Biz News.